Sports Radio 104.3 The Fan. Every Saturday morning, it's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Terry takes you inside the outdoors. You know, hunting, fishing, camping. It's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, here's Terry. All right, guys. Well, we are listening to the Terry Wickstrom Outdoors show, but you have me, Will Dykstra, in studio today covering for Terry. And I tell you what, this weather we woke up again to today, winter just will not go away here in Colorado. But good news is we have some lakes opening to boating here pretty soon, so we should be able to get out there. But we've got an awesome show on tap today. We're going to be talking a lot of predators. We'll be talking some turkey hunting. And uh, we're also going to be talking here in the first hour to Collins Elick from TFO Rods about fly fishing for big predators. That's lake trout. Um, even walleyes, northern pike, muskies, tiger muskies, all that. We're going to cover basically what you need to do to catch big fish with a fly rod, and a lot of this will be from the bank. So, uh, Collins, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Will? I am good, and like I said, it woke up this morning to about an inch of snow on my grass this morning again, and I'd say I'm pretty worn out with this this cold weather that we've had, but, you know, at least uh, it's there, there's light at the end of the tunnel somewhere. So, Well, I barely barely made it out of the house in my flip-flops this morning if that makes any difference to you well uh yeah we're not going to go into that right now so (laughs) but collins thanks for coming on this morning uh for for those of you out there that don't know who collins is collins is basically mr everything for temple fork outfitters rods and uh he is a very knowledgeable individual when it comes to bass fishing but also i'd say collins is one maybe one of your favorite things to do is, is fly fish for any kind of species and you've been out here a couple times with me to fly fish for big predators lake trout pike and uh you know i think it could be one of the more effective ways to catch a really big fish especially when you're talking about a a fish that needs a presentation that hangs out in the strike zone for a long time so we're going to talk first of all kind of about the the rod setup and and line weight setup that you're going to have to target these big fish then we'll kind of go into some flies and maybe some presentation so collins why don't you start off talking about how you would go about setting up a fly rod for chasing you know say a big northern pike or even a lake trout well, you know, it comes down to um, what an angler wants to do. But if you just wanted to say, I'm going to, I'm really going to try, how about we'll take it from two angles. I'm going to try to go predator fly fishing. Then you just get your fly rod and get some heavier terminal tackle, heavier leader, throw on the biggest fly you can cast and, and, and go fishing. If you want to get really serious about it, you know, then you go pick an eight, nine or 10 or an eight and a 10 up and and really dial it in and it doesn't have to be very very complicated it's just like if you were taking your bait caster or your spinning reel out there in my bank fishing in my bank fishing in a flat and my bank fishing out by a drop-off maybe i need a sinking line maybe i need a floating line and you you it's the same approach as if you had a spinning reel versus a casting reel it's just different equipment you know what part of the water column are you targeting and what size fly do you need to cast? And that really comes down to angler experience, angler preference, and uh, and how hard they want to work. You I, know? I, I can't, I couldn't agree more. And something too to think about. You know, a, a lake trout's a completely different animal when it comes to this. But you know, a lot of guys think when they're targeting, say, a big northern pike or even a, a musky or a tiger musky with a fly rod, they assume they have to have a ten weight. And for me, you know, these fish, you know, a northern pike specifically. 
um, those fish aren't going to make big, long runs. You actually don't need to have a big, heavy 10-weight fly rod for something like that, at least for the fish. Now, for some of these flies, you might be able to present that fly uh, exactly a, little, right. a, a little bit better with a heavier rod, but don't necessarily think you have to have a 10-weight to catch these big fish. You, you don't have to make a new investment to try this out. Your investment has to be, I need a 0x leader instead of your 5x or 6x traditional Colorado trout leader, and I need $30 worth of flies, and I'm just going to go try. It's not, I need a new rod, I need a new reel, and I need 300 yards of backing because you're never going to see that backing. It's, it's just an aggressive bulldog fight that, just like if you were on a seven and a half foot extra heavy musky rod, you know? Exactly, exactly. Now, I will say this, a lake trout might be a little bit more of a different animal that you might need more backbone um, in that rod to get that fish because those fish are actually going to actually make runs. And, you know, we've had them uh, peel 60, 70, 80 yards of, of uh, braid off of a, a spinning reel or a bait casting reel in just a matter of seconds. So that's all kind of a different animal. But let's talk about, you know, so it depends on if you're fishing next to a ledge or if you're fishing, you know, some shallow flats. But for me personally, when I'm targeting these fish with a fly rod, I'm not necessarily going to use a sinking fly line. Um, for me, I'm going to use probably a little heavier fly that's going to allow my, that, that's going to, you know, get me into the water column a little bit. But something I want to hammer on, and maybe you talk about it too, is the fact that, you know, say with a big, uh, a big bunny style streamer or a Dahlberg diver type of thing, yep. you know, a fly like that. Well, it kind of can emulate from the conventional side a suspending jerkbait. But the cool so, thing about it is that it actually has life while it's doing nothing. You know, a jerkbait is hard plastic. It's not doing anything. But a lot of these flies will actually have life when they're sitting there. So talk a little bit about how these flies hang out in the strike zone. So a few of the benefits that fly fishing versus gear fishing offers you when you are uh, really targeting, especially lethargic fish, is yes, a bunny strip fly, while it's sitting there, it's undulating, it's moving, it looks alive versus, yeah, you know, your Rapala is, it looks like a Rapala in a plastic box if you're not moving it. The other thing that is really, really, really compelling about fly fishing is, one, if I'm making, if I'm casting two structure and I only want to fish three, four, five feet off that structure, I can make that cast, fish as far as I want to fish, pick up make the exact same cast again. It's boom, boom, boom. You don't have to fish any of that water that's the void between you and the structure. And the other thing is, you know, when you want to suspend a fly, you stop. It'll do whatever you want it to do. You can have your whole setup can be neutrally buoyant. Your whole setup can be floating. And your whole setup could be free sinking up to in about nine inches per second. So you, you can present it as subtly as you want, or you could do a two-hand strip on fly line and move it just as fast as if you were burning it with a bait caster. Absolutely, Collins. That's great stuff. Now, real quick, let's talk. If somebody wants to get, you know, pick up a TFO fly rod or, or uh, a fly rod for to, to get after predators first, where can they find something from TFO? I know there's a handful of shops around town, uh, discount fishing tackle, places like that that have um, fly rods or the carry TFO rods, but if they wanted to get online and order something, how would they go about that? You know, what I would ask is uh, we don't sell direct, but we have a, a complete dealer listing on our website, tforods.com. And uh, if they can't find a dealer that's suitable there, they can call our 800 number. We will help them find whatever they need. Or if they want to just talk about 
picking out a rod, whatever, we're happy to talk fishing anytime. And that number is 800-638-9052. That's perfect. And, hey, real quick, before I let you go, um, something we forgot to hammer about. So a lot of guys, when they're talking about chasing a, a toothy critter with uh, a fly rod, a lot of guys will kind of wig out and say, hey, we need to, I need to have some kind of wire leader on there. And there's a lot of different uh, kinds of leaders out there that you can um, use. But I've had my best luck with just something like a, and people cringe at it, but say a, a 17 to 20 pound fluorocarbon leader with just a tiny little uh, crosslock snap on the end of it so you can switch flies out quickly is kind of my setup. If you were going to be setting up for a leader um, for a big toothy critter, what would you be using? I, I'm with you in that I would just keep it simple, especially as I'm starting out. Now, if I'm on a lifetime muskie trip, I may go to some braided titanium. Uh, for any freshwater predator fishing, I would stay away from single strand. I think that's just monstrously overkill. But Colorado predator fishing, especially if you're just trying it out, yeah, 17, 20, 25 pound fluorocarbon. Um, and even if you had it and you didn't have fluorocarbon, you could do a hard mono. And you're likely to be okay. Absolutely. And something, you know, again, to go back to, to presentation, if you're using a heavier mono, that fly is going to sink a little quicker. Or, I mean, a, a heavier floral, that fly is going to sink a little quicker versus a mono that will actually maybe allow that to suspend a little better, too. But if you're trying to get more depth out of it, you can mess with that fluorocarbon as well. So, And one more point, if, if you don't mind. Yeah. Using that 17-pound fluoro versus a braided titanium, you know, you may lose a few fish, but you're going to get more bites. That's that you know we that's a great point when we're fishing you know conventional gear we actually we're, you know we're trolling for pike casting for pike we actually don't use any kind of steel leader out here and it's because our fish are so pressured and not to mention the fact that they are extremely well fed so we're competing with other anglers as well as competing with the forage to catch these fish so doing whatever you can to make that as realistic of a presentation is absolute key to that so keep that in mind now if you're going to a place like you said on a lifetime trip a, a musky trip or even one of those pike trips up up in the far north uh, you know, maybe having some kind of wire leader, like you said, a braided titanium isn't a terrible idea. And our friends over there at American Fishing Wire have everything you can uh, dream of for something like that. Absolutely. All right, Collins. Well, hey, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, I guess I'll be seeing you in a couple of weeks here to, ca- uh, to catch some Colorado walleye. Looking forward to it, man. Take care. Say hello to the family. Likewise. Thanks, Collins. Bye. All right, guys. That was Collins Elick from TFO Rods. An absolute great interview for those of you that are either expert fly fishermen or looking to just get into the into the game with targeting these fish uh, with a fly rod. Guys, coming up next, we have the musky legend himself, Pete Mena, coming on. We're going to be talking about sign, uh, sound science bucktails and kind of how sound affects these fish, especially when you're targeting them. You're listening to 104.3 The Fan. We are back here on this beautiful Saturday morning here in Colorado. You're listening to the Terry Wickstrom Outdoor Show on 104.3 The Fan. Will Dykstra in studio covering for Terry and very excited about the, the folks that we have coming on today. And we are not going to waste any time that we have with this guy. We have Pete Mena on the line today who is an absolute musky legend and uh, certainly has a ton of content online for you to check out and is just a wealth of knowledge when it comes to chasing big muskies, big northern pike, Basically, if it if it's big and it swims, Pete's chasing it. So, Pete, how are you today? 
Well, I'm great. I'm uh, I'm somewhere in Kentucky right now on my way back home from thawing out in Florida. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I, you know, you're you got to get get your tropical vacation in and uh, warm up because living in in Wisconsin like you do, it is still a frozen tundra up there. Oh, it absolutely is. And interestingly, what I'm going to do tomorrow uh, after I get home late tonight is I'm going to pack up all my ice fishing gear and I'm going to go further north uh, up to central Ontario. And we're going to try and catch big toothy northern pike through the ice. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense coming from 80 degrees, but that's what I'm going to do anyway. Right. Well, I, I figured you said you're in Kentucky. I figured maybe you'd be stopping to fish cave run or something like that on the way through. <laughs> no, I don't have a boat. Right, right, for sure. Well, hey, Pete, I don't want to, um, or I, I want to have an opportunity to talk with you, you know, about something that you've kind of developed over the last several years. And, you know, the muskie and pike fishing world has become, uh, you know, pretty set in their ways with how they do things. And, and you know, at first it was the, the inline bucktail with typically a single Colorado or Indiana or, um, you know, some kind of blade on it. Um, that caught a lot of muskies for a really long time. And then we had the big double-bladed uh, bucktail and tinsel tail style of, uh, of baits come out that absolutely took the muskie and pike world by storm. And you took that even a step further with some of the things that you're doing with sound science. And I would love for the listeners here in Colorado, because we throw a lot of spinner baits and a lot of bucktails for, for our northern pike here. And uh, something that a lot of people don't realize is there's ways to make these baits sound different. Why don't you talk a little bit about what you're doing with these sound science bucktails? Yeah, yeah, sure. That's a, it's an awesome topic, and it's really interesting. It's, uh, frankly, something I think we're all up against uh, as, as predator anglers. I mean, the vast majority of the fisheries these days obviously rely on, uh, on catch and release uh, fishing, and especially so with the top-of-the-line predators like muskie and northern pike because they're the lowest-density animals in the systems. But what we're dealing with now that wasn't as big a factor years ago are educated fish just because they're getting recycled. Uh, the average angler is just way better, too. So they're not only are they getting caught and released and being hooked and getting off and, and, and this, that, and the other, but they're just seeing more presentations all the time. So it's uh, certainly arguable, and somebody much smarter than me may know exactly how smart a fish is, but they do learn. There's absolutely no doubt about it. So one of the one of the bigger things that you're trying to accomplish just in general, obviously, is triggering fish. But these days, more and more every year, it's, it's something different, whether it be color, action, sound, uh, whatever concepts that you can come up with that nobody else is doing, that's, that's to your advantage. And the sound thing was something that I realized early on, really only in top water. I, I, I knew that I would have very effective lures of certain types of surface baits, uh, but they were, they were definitely not all the same. And the biggest clue was you would be catching fish on a bait and then you'd hook a nice big muskie and you'd get it in the net. And something would change about the sound of that topwater lure because the blade got tweaked just a little bit. And all of a sudden it wasn't working. So that's a real long version of of knowing. I I was certain that sound was the absolute biggest factor with topwater for years, but not so much. In recent years, with the inline bucktail concept, 
one thing that I was kind of surprised about, I'm sure I'm not the first guy to ever try it, but I thought, why uh, are we not trying to make different sounds, different blade combinations? So essentially what I started doing was rather than trying two of the same type and size of blades on inlines, I started trying to mix and match. And essentially what I came up with after a lot of trial and error is baits that sound different and vibrate differently just because you're matching different types of blades and sizes of blades. Now, the majority of what I tried didn't actually spin or work, but I knew the single, the first bait that I had that worked decent was a Colorado French blade combination. And I knew right away when I could feel that vibration that I had something totally different. And that was kind of the, the start of the whole concept is essentially what I was trying to do is develop a line of baits with a bunch of different vibrations that within the line had different vibrations and sound than the others, but, but also obviously in the, in the general marketplace. So that's, that's been the concept and that has gone all kinds of places because now I work for uh, Livingston Lure Company as well in uh, development and design of baits. And I don't know how many people are aware of that company, but they are the only hard lure company that literally has uh, battery systems and speaker systems inside every lure uh, from which emit uh, bait fish sounds. Yeah, which which is something like you said, it's something that's completely different and it'll actually, uh, you know, it might trigger following fish or or it might get those fish that are used to seeing the same old thing go over. And the cool thing about it, we talked about it with fly fishing a little bit earlier before you came on, is while that bait's sitting there, it's still actually doing something, which is something that's key, especially when you're talking about muskies who sometimes will, or pike even, that'll slap at a topwater bait. And, uh, you know, even sometimes letting that bait just rest and they'll come back and, and, and finish it off, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. And fly fishing is a great example, frankly, and a lot of, you know, it's, it's more popular in a, in, in a river situation, at least in my area. Uh, a lot of, a, a lot of river fishermen use flies and stuff, but in the, in the more normal, let's say, uh, in lakes and stuff like that, that's a, that's a presentation that's not common. So a cert, to a certain extent, it's the same concept as trying to achieve these different sounds. And, and there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that it makes a big difference. I have seen some profound things uh, with the sound science line of bucktails that is really amazing. Now, nothing works all the time. That, I'll be the first to say that. Honesty is key here. And I wish I could frankly predict exactly what bait and which conditions and that was going to work every time and I can't and I don't think I ever will but what I have seen is where three to four anglers are in the boat and only one lure starts working and it turns out to be one of these inline spinners and then other types of inline spinners are tried and again it doesn't happen all the time sometimes they'll bite on a variety of things but there's been just amazing circumstances at times where you're literally the only one fishing because you have that one bait with that one sound. I've seen it. There's no doubt in these cases, it wasn't color. It wasn't anything other than sound that was turning those fish on and actually making them bite. I mean, we're literally talking absolutely nothing else. 
right. but one sound. Right, which is absolutely. And, and that's crazy to me. It, it, it is crazy, and, and it shows you, you know, I say sometimes we give these fish too much credit, but, uh, you know, in certain situations like this, when we're talking about pressured fish, you know, these fish actually, you know, they there's something about it that, that makes them bite, and, and it certainly has to do with changing things up. So, Pete, we are at the uh, at the back of this uh, segment here. Thank you so much for coming on. If people want to find more out about Pete Mana and stuff you're doing, where, where can they go? Well, the main website's PeteMana.com. I've got, uh, I've got Facebook. I've got YouTube. I'm on Instagram, all that stuff these days. You can't keep track of all of it. Face Twitter, yeah, Twitter. I got, I got <laughs> that sure. going on, so... Uh, Perfect. Well, Pete, thank you so much for coming on. And guys, please uh, check this stuff out that Pete's doing. It is a game changer for us, especially in the predator market. Pete, thank you so much again for coming on and uh, look forward to chatting with you as the year goes on. Oh, you bet, man. Thank you. All right. Very much enjoyed it. Drive safe. Thanks, Pete. All right, guys, that was Pete Mayna. We are uh, coming up here on a break. Coming up next, we got Pat Lancaster coming on to talk turkeys. You're listening to 104.3 The Fan. All right, you're listening to 104.3 The Fan, the Terry Wickstrom Outdoor Show. I am Will Dykstra in studio today covering for Terry, and the sun is finally starting to poke out and uh, definitely looking like it's going to be one of those beautiful Saturdays here in Colorado. Guys, I have got a very good friend of mine, Pat Lancaster, coming on right now to talk a little bit about turkey hunting, and we might even get a chance to talk a little bit of big game if we have time. Uh, But Pat Lancaster, how are we doing today? Doing great, Will. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Now, Pat, for those of of you out there that don't know who Pat is, Pat basically uh, runs an outfitting business, Lancaster Outfitters, or Lancaster's Outfitters, and they basically outfit for everything in the state of Colorado. A lot of stuff is uh, down there in the southern part of the state. Roughly, what, 200,000 acres of of private land that you guys hunt? That's right, Will. We're over 200,000 acres. And, uh, you know, so this time of year, we're getting close to turkey time, Pat. And uh, there's a lot of people out there that just love chasing turkeys, and there's a lot of people out there that are just getting into it. So uh, let's talk a little bit about what people are looking for when, they're, when, they're, when you're talking about targeting turkeys, especially here in Colorado. For those of you that might be moving here from the eastern plains or, or from the eastern part of uh, the United States or used to chasing a couple of these other uh, strains of turkeys, we have Miriam turkeys here for the most part in Colorado, and uh, they're definitely a little bit of a different animal. They are. I mean, we're hunting them at elevations of anywhere from 6,000 to 8,500 feet. A little bit, certainly different terrain than, than most of the southern and eastern parts of the country. Uh, it can be challenging. It's uh, quite enjoyable, but certainly can be challenging. Yeah, you know, most people when they hear, you know, turkey hunting, they don't imagine uh, putting, uh, you know, tons of miles on their boots uh, getting after these birds. And, and something that I draw this parallel to, and I, I'll be honest with you, I haven't done a ton of turkey hunting, but the but something that, that people – don't realize is it is a lot like hunting elk during the rut. I have a lot of hunters that have never hunted elk before and they come out and, but they are avid turkey hunters and, and that's exactly what they say. They go, well, this is just like turkey hunting. And I would have to agree. There's, there's times that uh, the birds will come charging into a call. And there's other times that uh, it doesn't matter how good a caller you are or how good a hunter, they're just not going to come. So it it varies, and quite often you can just set up and call them, or a lot of times it's just a little bit of a cat and mouse type of hunt, and that's just like it is with elk. You just have to kind of take what they'll give you. 
Absolutely. Now, Pat, if, if uh, you know, people were, were to come up and talk to you about this and, and say, hey, you know, give me two or three keys to, to chasing turkeys here in Colorado, what are they going to be looking for as far as terrain goes? And, uh, and maybe even talk about, you know, whether you think, you know, and I think for success reasons, obviously a shotgun is going to be the way to go. But, you know, you get a lot of archery hunters that like to do this too. But, uh, you know, what are, what are maybe two or three keys to getting after these birds? And what, what would you be looking for? I think really just having an idea of, of the land and, and the birds themselves. Uh, they're, these Miriams are pretty territorial. They they do wander occasionally, but uh, when they are with hens, they're going to be pretty much in the same proximity. Um, they'll roost up on higher ridge lines in, in the areas where we hunt, usually up in, in the pines and firs. Um, rarely will they roost down in the, in the creek bottoms in the cottonwoods like you see out in eastern Colorado. And typically, they'll just kind of pitch down and, and work their way down a ridge line to a uh, uh, floor or the bottom and meadows where they can strut and see. And so just knowing where the, where they are and, and typically where they go from roost and where you, if you aren't set up under the roost at daylight, you can at least maybe get to an area where they're going to end up a little later in the morning and, and, and set up and, and try to call them from there. So... That's what I like to do is just kind of wait for them in the bottoms and uh, let them come down to you. Now, now you make a great point there, something that a lot of people, I think it happens a lot with elk hunters, deer hunters, you know, hunters in general is uh, sometimes people have a tendency, and I'm guilty of this, anybody that's hunted with me or spent any time in the woods with me is I have a hard time sitting still. Um, and what a lot of people will do is they'll actually push birds out of their, out of the area, you know, just cause they're excited or trying to, you know, maybe check out what's over that next ridge. And it's a lot like, a lot like big game hunting where you want to try to set up on these areas that are between their bedding areas and their feeding areas, or in this case, uh, you know, their strutting areas or where they're, or where they're headed to, uh, um, you know, basically, you know, do their thing. So that's something that that's a big key with, with any kind of hunting, really. But just make sure you're not pushing these animals or, or these birds, in this case, out of their area. Have you noticed, Pat, whether these birds, you know, if you if you pressure them a little bit, do they leave the area, you know, like, like an elk or a deer might? Or are they going to, for the most part, stick around? Uh, short term, they'll definitely uh, leave the area. <clears throat> they'll typically kind of circle back and kind of end up in the same general area, maybe not on the same ridge line or roost or in the same area or feed in the exact same area, but they'll, they'll come back, but you're going to make things a lot tougher than they need to be. If you do, you do pressure them too much, Will, and uh, I'm guilty of that all the time. I, I get impatient and I think, yeah, gosh, they're not coming. And I get up and start to make a move. And next thing you know, I can hear them putting and off they go. So, <laughs> exactly. Patience is key for sure. Patience is key. So, uh, Pat, real quick, if people want to get a hold of you for for a guided hunt or, or you know, um, getting out, whether it's a turkey hunt or even an elk hunt, um, where they can, where can they find out more about you and and Landcasters Outfitters? Uh, they can they can call me on my cell phone, uh, which is seven two zero nine three three six one two two, or email me at lcopat at yahoo dot com. Perfect, and we'll, and we're going to post those online uh, with this uh, with the with with the podcast here, so that people can can check that out. Because I'm telling you, if you are looking to get into an elk hunt or even a turkey hunt, a mule deer hunt, 
Um, you guys do it all, and I'll tell you what, you will not be disappointed. These are some of the biggest bulls that get harvested in the state of Colorado um, that they harvest every year there in the fall down in southern Colorado, and also, uh, you know, a pretty high percentage hunt with the turkeys, too. We do. We're actually starting turkey hunts this spring on, on a new ranch that hadn't been hunted for turkeys in many, many years, and I'm excited about that. Absolutely. All right, guys. Well, hey, Pat, thank you so much for coming on. Look forward to catching up with you some more and uh, even hopefully spending some time in the woods with you this year. And, and thank you again for coming on, guys. This is great information from um, somebody that's that's literally a master at this business. Thanks, Will. All right, Pat. We'll talk to you soon. All right, guys. Well, coming up next, we've got Joe Booker, the uh, Hall of Fame angler. He's the host of Fishing with Joe Booker and also Joe Booker Outdoors. We are going to be talking some multi-species angling on how that can better your predator angler angling coming up next. You're listening to 104.3 The Fan. All right, you guys. You are listening to 104.3 The Fan. I'm Will Dykstra, guys. This segment is brought to you by Sun Power Sports. And I am very excited to have this segment, uh, have Hall of Fame legendary angler Joe Booker on the line to talk a little bit about multi-species angling and how that can basically make you a better angler for maybe some of these big predators like a lot of us that are musky and pike fanatics. So, Joe, how are you today? Good morning, Will. Great to talk with you. It is absolutely my pleasure to have you on today, Joe. Um, You know, we talked the other day. And we've we we got more snow last night. What do you know out here in Colorado? But the good news is, is we had a little bit of rain before that. That's going to help break up some of this ice. And it sounds like a couple of our walleye lakes might be opening up this week, uh, along with uh, uh, several of the others that opened up last week. So we are excited to finally get out and chase some fish open water. But uh, you know, for those of us Joe that are that are musky pike fanatics that love catching these big toothy critters, um, the time of year that we might not be able to chase them, there's some there's a handful of things that we can do to kind of brush up our skills that'll make us better anglers. And you being the musky authority that you are, um, you know, for a lot of people that don't know, you host uh, uh, Fishing with Joe Booker as well as you run Joe Booker Outdoors, which is a a line of lures. But talk a little bit about what, um, how you would approach this time of year and basically some multi-species angling that'll, you know, basically better you for the rest of the year. Well, I think the big thing to, to, you know, when you just look, if you just look at my career, Will, I started out and I became actually well-known first as a bass angler, a teenage bass angler, and then as a walleye and bass guide. And then I became this musky guru that everybody knows me as today in the musky and pike world. So, so if you just think about that in the full context, I got, all of these skills, I developed all these skills as a bass angler and a wall angler. And I guess if you, you know, if you, if it just wrapped that all up, you can, you can see that. Well, if you're a well-rounded angler and you, you take the concept of angling as a whole and you learn all the skills in the bass, bass fishing in particular, if you learn bass fishing skills. It, it just, it rolls into musky and pike fishing almost perfectly. You add a wire leader and you add a figure eight and you're a musky bike guy, you know, I mean, really. Uh, and, and, and when you, when you're, when you're fishing the shoulder seasons, I call it the spring and the fall, the shoulder seasons. And in some cases you get the fish, uh, depending on where you fish, you get the fish a little bit later in the fall or earlier in the spring for these, these critters. You better know the, you know, better know the bass and the walleye game, you know, the multi-species game and learn. It, it, it not only, it not only improves your fundamental skills as a fisherman, you know, it, with, with casting, working different lures. Right. Uh, it also gives you a better perspective 
as to how all the other fish relate in the system. And when you just think about, you know, the entirety of the predator-prey relationship between, you know, apex predators like muskies and pike, and then you start, you know, going down the food chain, they they have to be near everything else to, to, to have food to eat. And so if you connect the dots, well, if you, if you become a better pike and walleye angler, um, and a better trout angler, whatever your, your other species that you prefer to fish for, um, you're, it's going to translate well in the muskie angling. And the only thing I would leave you with on, on that is if you're one of those muskie and pike guys that doesn't fish for other species, I think it, I think it actually hurts you because you don't, you don't get those perspectives in terms of skill and in terms of seeing the, big, the bigger picture. You, you know, you hit it on the head there, and I'll be the first one to admit it. I've been that guy uh, in the past where, you know, oh, if it's not a big muskie or a pike or even a big lake trout, I don't want to fish for it. It's, you know, and, and the reality is, is there's things, you know, in all of those uh, presentations, if you will, that, that improve you. And and I remember specifically, um, I believe it was an episode of your sh- on your show where you talked about how all of a sudden uh, – you know, throwing a suspending style jerk bait versus throwing something that you know that's got a lot of buoyancy to it, like a you know a floating a floating uh, crankbait or even a floating jerk bait. That lure doesn't hang out in the strike zone a lot, and a lot of times, uh, and and that's something that you I, I believe it was you that you you noticed while you were bass fishing a very similar piece of structure where you go over it with a crankbait, and you might not catch the fish that are there, but you go back through with a suspending jerk bait. And and all of a sudden you catch a bunch of bass, and then translating that into the to the musky pike game, you know it, it's a it, it it's a make or break. I've got I've got two. You're absolutely right. Well, I've got two YouTube episodes up right now that <clears throat> your fans can watch. One is that I just released a few days ago that shows me fishing suspending jerk baits <clears throat> for bass and walleyes, and the light goes on, so to speak, and I go, oh, geez. Why can't I do the same thing to a musky lure and have the same results? And then a few weeks ago, I, 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 I uh, aired a, a YouTube episode that's also up there that folks can watch where you, you actually watch me catch fish by modifying a, a floating diving jerkbait. And it becomes, it's, I just, I, I stole the bass tactic and translated the muskies exactly what you just said and, and with the same results. Absolutely. And, Again, connecting the dots too is that same area where I was ca- I'm catching those big muskies is also a terrific smallmouth walleye spot that you can run right through there with small jerk baits and do essentially the same technique and catch the walleyes and the smallmouths. And of course, if you tie into a big muskie with the light tackle, you're going to have a lot of fun and you're going to have your hands full. Yeah, there's no question about it. And, and Joe, Joe, talk a little bit about, you know, so these modifications, for those of you that, that haven't had a chance to check that episode out that I think you're probably going to want to, absolutely, is, you know, there's some modifications that we can do because sometimes lures, and you, Joe, being a lure manufacturer yourself, um, sometimes there's modifications that we can do to these lures that uh, don't necessarily, I want to say, ruin the bait. It still still allows you to fish it, you know, how you'd want to fish it later in the year or earlier in the year. But there's some things that we can do to these baits to make them perform form um, in the situation that we're currently fishing. So what are some of those modifications that you like to do? Well, the simplest thing, the thing that are, that your, your fans that are listening today, the simplest thing you can do folks is if you have a, a favorite floating diving minnow bait, no matter what it is, a bass lure or a musky lure, the easiest way to make it less buoyant or suspend is just to change hook sizes. It's so simple. You just uh, keep, keep always, you know, that's why they sell replacement hooks and, 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 uh, all these, these different hook kits at, at, at various sporting goods stores, 
you know, if, if the lure you're fishing has a size four, uh, four hook on it, for example, if you, if you go to a size two or a size one, which is going up, up in hook size, um, it's going to weight the lure down more. And in the musky pike world, you know, if you're using a one-odd hook, you go to a two-odd or a three-odd hook to decrease the buoyancy, and you actually create a, you know, you create more keel and you m- more weight under the lure. And that's one of the easiest things you can do. A second thing you can do is real simple is <clears throat> in, in a lot of sporting stores, they sell these, this, this lead tape, the stick-on lead tape that works terrific on these lures. But you can also go to any kind of a hardware store and get stick-on lead plumbing tape. And, and it's essentially the same product. And you can, you can attach this to your lures at various points, your lures. And, and decrease the buoyancy and create a suspending lure or even a slow sinking lure off the same bait. And what makes one of your favorite baits, you know, just more versatile for different situations. And you can take the tape off or change the hook sizes out and go back the way it was on the factory side when you want it to be a floating diver. You know, that's a great point because a lot of people, what they'll do is is they'll start experimenting with, hey, you know, I'm going to drill this lure out. We're going to put a little bit of lead in there, maybe add some split shot in there to add some rattles and that kind of stuff. But what that ends up doing is it kind of takes away the original um, action or, or presentation yes. that you have with that lure. So it, it's kind of a cool modification. And, and the other thing that you can do with that, Joe, and I might add on is, you know, where you put that lead tape on that lure. Um, yes certainly has an effect on how that bait's going to react or how it's going to act. And sometimes nose weighting it can be better. Sometimes tail weighting it can be better. But if you're looking for that nice horizontal uh, suspension, you know, running that that lead tape, you know, say we're talking about a a 7 to 9-inch floating, uh, you know, crankbait or twitch bait, you know, running that string of of plumber's tape basically between the the front hook and the middle hook is basically where you're going to want to put that. Yeah, and, and I'll tell you, one of the easiest things to do, too, uh, is, is to just take and find the balancing point in your, just pinch, you know, take your, take your thumb and, and one of your fingers and just pinch the lure at various points and, and watch if it, once it doesn't drop, if it doesn't tail drop or nose drop, you found the middle or the balancing point of the lure. And if you just go underneath the lure right there and, and add your weight in that area, then you will retain the, 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 the basic fundamentals of the way the lure is designed you'll you'll retain the design nature of the lure once you start adding weight to the tail or to the nose you change it but if you stay in the balancing spot and that's one of the things as a lure manufacturer a lure designer that's one of the things i always mess with you know is like if i'm going to change buoyancy i always do it from the balancing point if i'm going to change you know diving depth and and the way the lure works well then you know I'll, I'll start adding a little of lead to the nose or weight to the nose and vice versa. One last thing, even with hook sizes, by the way, if you add odd hook sizes, so for example, if you want a tail down nose up bait, if you add just one larger hook to your lure, one size larger just to, to the tail of your lure, when you let that lure rise, it'll rise with the nose slightly up. And that's, and again, you're not doing anything else to the lure. You can take that hook off at any time and, and, and return to the original manufacturer's uh, hooks that were on the bait, and, and you haven't damaged the lure. That, that is a great point. And, again, the key is the fact that you can manipulate these baits, modify these baits without necessarily ruining them, and still be able to fish with that same lure in maybe three or four different scenarios throughout the day, which allows you to be more versatile, and which is what we're hammering on. You know, being a multi-species angler can allow you to be more versatile. Now, 
Uh, real quick, Joe, we got about two minutes. Let's talk real quick about the downsizing application for catching these big predators. And, you know, we, we talk about all the time here, but basically bass fishing for these predators sometimes is a way to go. Yes. <clears throat> What's really interesting, excuse me, in the muskie and pike world, recently there's been a huge uh, trend towards upsizing. <clears throat> bigger, 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 bigger rods, bigger lures, bigger lines, all this stuff. <clears throat> and um, frankly, you know, the guys that have been in a long time, like myself, have uh, because just physically have had to use smaller baits over time because you just can't throw that big stuff for big hours. So that was one of the things that, sh- that shot this trend in the other direction. But the other thing is that, you know, once these big fish start to follow this big, the, the, the larger lures and they stop hitting them, which you will recognize will happen occasionally. And when that happens, one of the quickest ways you can, you can create success for yourself is just to start downsizing. And one of the easiest things I do, folks, is I just, whatever lure I'm moving fish on, I just start going the opposite way. I start downsizing on that lure, even the same color, until I start getting strikes from it. Now, a lot of times you have to go quite a ways down to actually trigger the strike. And one other thing I do is I increase the speed. So when I go down in size, I increase the speed. And that the two of them together usually trigger strikes, especially in clear water. There's there's no doubt about it, and, and Joe, I know it happens uh, time and time again up the, up north, but and here in Colorado it happens a lot on our big pike lakes that are that are traditionally trout lakes as well. Is you'll hear on a day that you might have struggled, you know, fishing for muskies, or a day that you might have struggled fishing for pike, you'll get back to the dock and and a, and a guy will be talking about a, a trout fisherman or a walleye fisherman will be talking about, man, I caught my biggest muskie of the day or or of my life, I caught my biggest yep. northern of the day, and it's typically on something like a small tube jig or or a twister tail. Yep. And it's because sometimes downsizing is the presentation that you need to trigger these bigger fish to catch. You're absolutely right. And and, and, and completely the opposite. You'll run into these musky and pike guys at the boat landing. The bass guys will, and that guy's holding and showing a picture of the biggest bass or the biggest trout he ever caught on a big musky lure. So <laughs> exactly. Both <things> occur, right? <laughs> there's, there's no, my biggest walleye that I've ever caught was caught on a zigzag topwater bait musky fishing on a, on a reef on the, on probably the two foot of water portion of that reef. Uh, you know, a 33 and a half inch walleye that, you know, you just wrap your, you try to wrap your, your head around the fact that, A, you catch a big walleye on a musky bait, but then to throw in the fact that you caught it on a topwater bait in high sun conditions in extremely shallow water just goes to show you that, that the fish will always keep you on your toes. It, it, and that there are no set rules. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, Willie, it's been a great, it's been great talking with you. I'm excited that we, we got a chance to finally talk together. It was awesome. Absolutely, Joe. Thank you so much. We'll definitely be talking more over the course of the year. And I appreciate you so much, guys. This is Hall of Fame angler, uh, Joe Booker. Joe, where can they find out more about you if they don't, if they haven't checked out your YouTube channel? It's real easy. If you just type in, if you, if you just Google Joe Booker or fishing with Joe Booker, you're going to find me, and uh, our our YouTube channel's got all kinds of stuff. All and it's all it's all geared to, you know, teaching anglers how to fish. You know, especially from big fish to to to, to panfish. We're we're trying to teach folks how to fish and have a great time at this sport. Absolutely, and and something I'll say real quick too is is a cool thing about this is they're kind of short segments, so you don't spend the time watching watching them fish and not catch anything. It's getting a chance to see what they did to be successful on the water, which I think is absolutely key when you're trying to learn more and more about these fish. You bet. I I try to get to get to the what you need to know right away. With under five minutes, you're gonna you're gonna see fish caught and you're gonna learn how to do it. Absolutely, Joe. Thank you so much for coming on. Look forward to talking with you more in the future. 
Great talking with you, Will. Have a great weekend. You too. All right, guys, that was Hall of Fame angler Joe Booker. Just great information if you want to get better at just catching fish. You know, we as, we as predator anglers definitely love catching our big predators. There are certain things that we can do to get better at that while also still catching some other species of fish. So, all right, we, have, we are up against a break. We've got Nathan Zelensky coming up next. You're listening to 104.3 The Fan.